Here it goes again. Every hour, on the hour, coughing and puffing. Look, Doctor, I know science comes first. But that thing is ridiculous. For six hours straight. Every hour on the hour. Good afternoon, you're listening to 90.7 FM, KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rocks. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. And I'm Brian Gerke. Coming up on this week's show, we'll be taking a look at current events in the world of science and technology. Also joining us is Dr. Feng Chung Su, who will tell us the story behind Deep Blue, the chess playing machine. In addition, you can find out how to create a plasma in your very own home. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous Question of the Week, right here on Berkeley Rocks. And welcome back to Berkeley Rocks. I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And I am Brian Gerke. So, how's everyone doing? Not too bad, not too bad. Doing pretty well. Looking forward to Christmas coming up next week, so it should be pretty exciting. Jingle your bells. Jingle the bells all the way. Eating any good food lately, guys? Yeah, I've been having a lot of really good spam lately. Spam? A lot of good spam. Yeah. Oh, spam is very tasty all the time. It's it's tasty. Mm. Well, I mean, the the food spam, yes, but the, the... uh, the email spam, not so much. Uh, I like the one that's made of sawdust. I've never had that. Oh, okay. But uh, it turns out... I thought spam, actually, the reason spam was so good, <laughs> it's not to interrupt, but uh, was uh, it's very popular in Hawaii, apparently, because the idea is that it tastes a lot like human flesh for some reason. Human hmm. flesh? Yeah. Interesting. Well, anyway. I haven't had that lately. Yeah. What do you know? Well, spam, oh, however, the spam. email, the email the sort email of spam. spam. Oh, those spam. It's a pain, isn't it? It is a pain. You know, I, except that uh, you know, it, it lets you know where all the porn is on the internet. If if it um, weren't for that, I wouldn't know where to but find it. Yeah. Other than that, it's really bad. In fact, it's thought that about a third of the email sent around the world every day is spam. Hmm. That's uh, ten billion spam messages flying around every day. Wow. Which is pretty significant. And um, a group in at uh, AT and T's research lab in New Jersey is working on something called a single purpose email address system. Okay. That um, means that you can come up with an email address that will forward to your account that you send to a certain individual that you would like to receive messages from, and it can only be used by that individual and only for a, for a limited uh, amount of time, and then it becomes useless. So you actually encrypt rep- response uh, criteria into the email address so that other people can't use it, so it can't be picked up by people who want to send you spam, which would hopefully reduce the amount of spam that gets sent around. I see. So it's it's kind of like a 
sort of more advanced filter. Mechanism. Yeah, except the, mm. the email address itself actually filters. Right. Um, right. Filter, fil- filters the email for you. So, somewhat similar to uh, online credit card companies are starting to offer single-use uh, credit card numbers. Oh, uh, I've have heard of those. Use those online. I think right. it's a similar idea where you, if you want to sign up for some online email list mm-hmm. or something, mm-hmm. and you're worried that it's going to get sent to some spammer, well, you just send them the, the one that uh, only they can use. Right. And they can't send it off. So uh, that will that's currently in uh, prototype stage. So, so it may come around in the future. Who's developing that? Future. It's, uh, let's see, by John Ioannidis at uh, the AT&T Labs. Oh, the all-popular yes. Bell Labs, present. right. And if people want to read basic information on this, at least they can look in a recent version of New Scientist. All right. Cool. Okay, so have you chilled out lately? Uh, I chill out all the time. I do nothing but chill out. Yeah, except when I'm heated up. Or here's a new way to chill out. Use your stereo. Okay, that's new. So previously, you know, people were talking about using um, ultrasound to cause uh, cold fusion, you know, cavitation bubbles and all that. But now they're thinking of using high-amplitude high sounds to chill things down. And the whole idea is by having these uh, sound waves at a particular frequency, they have better heat transfer and... In this way, you can actually um, extract the heat out of you know some system very efficiently, much better than your uh, current refrigerators. Oh wow! So it turns out uh, these people, Matt Pose and Steve Garrett at Penn State, are working on this. Uh, it's quite interesting. So it turns out that the uh, the sound level that they they want to get this to work is at 173 decibels, which is uh, actually 200,000 times more powerful than the 120 decibels which is typically heard at a rock concert. Wow, geez, that's that's like a jackhammer. Yeah, wow. <laughs> pretty loud, and that that would be enough energy to uh, create the uh, the cooling effect, huh? Yeah, the cooling effect. I guess it's some sort of a heat transport effect happening at you know the, okay. the micro scale or something. Right. Probably not going to appear in your refrigerator anytime soon, but um, you know the uh, the Navy, uh, Ben and Jerry's are funding this, and they hope to get you know energy efficient refrigerators in the future. Ben, ben and Jerry's is funding this. Yes. Wow. I did not know their their powers extended onto the uh, the scientific frontier there, but cool. So, uh, is this really going to be uh, a lot better, I guess, than typical conventional uh, cooling methods? Supposedly, I mean, it should uh, it'll be much more energy efficient than the fridges we have right now. Um, this idea has been around for about twenty years, but until now, it just hasn't been able to be uh, implemented. And you know, it's going to take a while until it becomes commercialized. But at least there's promise that it may work. Much so more efficient, but perhaps louder. A little louder. <laughs> well, you know, you can if you can cool your refrigerator by playing uh, Def Leppard, hey. That <laughs> Pour is some sugar on me, baby. That's right. Okay, so if anyone wants to know more, they can check out the current issue of Scientific American. All right, well, so... What do you use all your old CDs for? Coasters. Coasters, yes. Yeah, coasters. I just put them in a microwave and zap and, you know, it's kind of fun. <laughs> have, you, have you tried that? I, I haven't tried that. What actually happens if you do that? Oh, you see these sparks flying around. It's really cool. All right, well, I'll, I'll have to give that a try. Sometimes it even breaks your microwave. but. Well, maybe I won't try that then. But uh, in case uh, you don't feel like using it as coasters or, or melting down your microwave with... You can, in fact, uh, use them to deposit ultra-thin films of uh, organic molecules on them. 
Uh-huh. Well, of course. Of course. I, I mean, mean, that and coasters. Yeah. Well, the two kind of go ahead. The hand first was hand. obvious. Yes. The second, even more obvious, apparently, because it's now appeared in the uh, recent issue of Analytical Chemistry, a group of researchers by, led by uh, you and others, uh, Hua Zhongyu, in fact, has uh, developed this method whereby they strip the protective coating that's on the, uh, the, the deposited on top of the CD layer, mm. which reveals the uh, gold molecules that are arrayed beneath it. Right. And these are in a very you know, precise array. And so they can deposit then some sulfur molecules on top of the gold molecules, which then are in a nice array. And then that can just bond to um, various organic molecules like DNA or proteins or whatever you want. Oh, so they think I'm using this as an analyzer of some sort. Right, right. So you can put well, you know, your different sorts of DNA on there and then you read it off and analyze it. And, and they're suggesting even that the, uh, the sorts of mechanisms used to read uh, CDR surfaces could actually be adapted to read off, say, DNA-type uh, sequence information or whatever else. Right. I think actually uh, another group had suggested earlier that they could imprint these uh, micro channels into these CDs and then have them spin around with you know samples which you, you know, inject at the center of the CD. By doing so, you could uh, separate you know entire uh, you know blood samples to see what's in it. Wow, that's kind of cool. Yeah. <laughs> well, so you know all kinds of uses for that, and uh, you know once again, if you're getting tired of uh, playing your Def Leppard CD for uh, warming your fridge or cooling your fridge, you can take it apart and uh, deposit DNA on it. Uh, if anyone wants to find out about this, this is a recent issue of Analytical Chemistry. And that's all for our look at current stories in the world of science this week. Coming up, Feng Chung Su will tell us a little bit about the Deep Blue Project and making the right moves. So stay tuned. Well, as you know, on this show, it's all about fun and games, and today's name of the game is chess. Well, joining us today is Dr. Feng Xiong-Su, the creator of Deep Blue, the computer that beat Kasparov in 1997. Dr. Su, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. First, could you describe the uh, so-called computer chess problem and how you got involved with it? Um, 
the computer's problem probably originated back in uh, the early uh, in the 19, late 1940s when computers just, the program of computer just became available and the early pioneer were interested in where they can get a program to play chess uh, for several reasons. One of them is because some of them are actually chess players, mm -hmm. so they are, they like to have fun. So that's one of the top topic that come up. And the other reason was there were a group of people, uh, people from co cognitive science and also from artificial intelligence arena, and they were interested in see whether they can program a computer to play chess at the level of the world championship level. And the idea there is if the computer can play at that level, and um, that would might mean that we have to penetrate the core of what intelligence means. And that was sort of the initial driving point. This would basically uh, represent an effort towards AI, is that right? That's one original starting point, yeah. Yeah, in your book, Behind Deep Blue, you describe the situation as not as man versus machine, but man as performer versus man as toolmaker. Uh, can you elaborate on that a little bit? I view the match as some man playing chess from, from two different ways. Mm -hmm. One is you play chess by yourself. The other one, you build a machine to play chess. So right. in the, ca the second case, machine is actually just a tool. Mm -hmm. You see whether you can get a tool to do certain things that normally require intelligence. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, it's a man as a tool maker. Yeah, tell us, what was it really like when you were um, at the competition table in 1995 and uh, 97? Uh, it's 96 or 97, actually. Oh, 96. Oh, let's start with 96 first. The first match, we played the match with the machine as basically just two, two weeks old. Uh -huh. So we were quite nervous going to the match. Uh -huh. And uh, we, we were relieved when we won the first games. Now, at the table, uh, in general, what we do is the following. Uh, we try not to distract the opponents um, because part of the whole purpose is try to play your opponent as his or her best. Right. So you want to make sure that they have the best condition, you don't want to distract them, and that's one part of the equation, that you try to be as nice a player as possible. Mm -hmm. And the other part of the equation is you also don't want the opponent to get unfair advantage. That is, you don't want to have your facial expression ex get the opponent any hints of what the machine thinks of the position. You don't want him to realize the machine thinks the position sucks for it. Okay, so would you say that the machine has a psychological advantage? Not necessarily. Uh, when human play chess in general, they also try to keep a poker face. Right. Casper is actually an exception. Casper uh, is quite expressive at the table, so you, you, you know that he's not happy, <laughs> quite obviously. Right. Uh, usually he don't get unhappy, though. <laughs> right, right. You know, when you, when you think about a chess game and all that, um, how does it compare to life? Do you think life is a chess game in a certain sense? Uh, life is far more complicated <laughs> than chess games. Yeah, the moves aren't very well defined, I guess. <laughs> the rules are not well defined, yes. And strange things can happen. And also, life is not a one versus one game. Yeah. Uh, chess is a zero-sum game. One side wins, the other side loses. Life usually is not a zero-sum game. Sometimes <laughs> it can be cooperative and uh, That's true. Game both side games. Uh-huh. So what do you like most about chess? As a player or as a researcher? As a player. As a player, Mm, actually, I'm not really much a chess player. Uh -huh. um, chess is a fascinating game. Uh, it has sufficient complexity that you know that you can't master it, mm -hmm. really. And there's also, of course, that intellectual cachet associated with it. That's why it's considered very important games. Uh -huh. And um, it's well covered. And it's a fun game to play. Yeah. Now, as a researcher, 
even most interesting in the family is well-defined task. Mm-hmm. And it's well-defined, non-trivial task. You can't really solve it easily. Mm-hmm. And that's the reason why I say computer chess problem is the holy grail in, in computer science for many years. Because mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. people thought that they can solve the problem real fast. Um, in fact, a professor at Carnegie Mellon called Herb Simon, who's also a Nobel laureate in economics, Mm. Uh, said that, I think back in 1950s, he said that, okay, within 10 years, a program programmed by him and a, f- a bunch of other people will be the world champion, unless the rule bought him, bought, bought the program from competing. Mm-hmm. Of course, he was wildly optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> well, in reality, you know, there are a lot of other games which are even harder to solve than chess, right? Like, for example, Go or... Uh or Chinese chess? Chinese chess has a complexity roughly comparable to chess. Mm-hmm. It might be slightly more complicated in the sense the ball is bigger, but on the other hand, the certain thing that's peculiar to chess in end games. There's some funny end game rules that probably didn't apply in Chinese chess because in end game chess, the king becomes very mobile, become powerful piece. Mm-hmm. In Chinese chess, the king is always weak piece. Mm-hmm. It's always subject to attack all the time, so that's that's one of the major difference between the two games. Oh, I see. Now, there's actually a game that's roughly com- in between Chinese chess or chess and Go. That is, there's a game called Shogi. That's Japanese chess. Okay. Japanese ch- uh, in Shogi, the difference is when you capture the piece. Okay, you have that piece in your hands, and you can then parachute the piece back into the bo- onto the board. Mm-hmm. So suddenly you have a branching factor. That is, the number of moves available become drastically increased. Uh, in fact, the largest number they say that you can have uh, on any particular position for Shogi is something over 500 moves. You can have over 500 legal moves in one particular position. That's higher than what you can get in, in Go. Go only have maximum you can get is 361 moves right. at, the, at the very beginning. In some instances, uh, Shogi can be more complicated than, 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 than Go. Though Go, uh, Go has a more complicated goal. Like you try to maximize the number of ter- uh, the territory you have. In Shogi, the same thing as in chess and Chinese chess. You just try to make the opponent's king, which is actually a ro- much simpler task. With the you know, development of Deep Blue and you know, faster computing power, do you think these tools can be used to solve um, you know, different scientific problems, like, say, uh, the weather patterning or like, uh, you know, protein folding? Well, forecasting is mostly a floating point applications. So in that sense, Deep Blue approach is most based is based on special purpose hardware in combination with uh, general purpose hardware. That approach can apply to weather forecasting as well, but mm-hmm. it may not be as applicable as in the case of Deep Blue when you actually have just B-level manipulation, which makes things a little bit easier. Uh, as far as protein folding concern or, or gene sequencing and that kind of things, um, I think IBM has a project called Blue Gene, uh, sort right. of dealing with, with right. that, that aspect. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of derivative of the basic concept that we use behind Deep Blue. Well, um, yeah, I come from a background in chemistry, organic chemistry, and you know, sometimes I wonder if we can use some of these computer techniques to um, optimize pathways for uh, achieving certain, certain targets. And it seems, because mm-hmm. we, we're playing with you know, well de- semi-well-defined rules, so it seems if we can apply these concepts, we could optimize a lot of the the discovery process, I think. Uh, it's plausible. Mm-hmm. Uh, but sometimes, uh, in this case, you require good approximation, right? In general, when you do those chemical computations, yeah, good approximation may, may make life much simpler. Uh-huh. So in terms of new trends in computing, what do you see in the you know, next, say, five or ten years? The big trend, 
uh, from computer science, the big trend actually is not favorable for computer scientists these days. <laughs> Things are getting commoditized. So um, there, there will still be a need for extreme processing capability. Mm -hmm. But uh, as far as the big market as well, the consumer market is these days, right. um, that part basically will be dominated by company who can produce it cheaper. And uh, in the case of HP, HP trying hard to push down the price of things. So to compete with somebody like Dell, <laughs> it's a tough business though. Oh, okay. So, yeah, if you look at the consumer market, I mean, you sometimes wonder what's the point of getting, you know, a faster Pentium, right? You already maxed out in terms of the processing power you need. I think for computer scientists and a lot of manufacturers, uh, the key point is whether we can get the killer app that actually require the uh -huh. massive computation powers. Uh -huh. um, Intel trying hard for that. HP trying hard for that. Mm -hmm. Microsoft trying hard for that. Right. Yeah, probably doesn't care. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I guess we're running a little bit out of time here. Uh, do you have any last words you'd like to uh, mention? Uh, nothing I'd like to mention. I hope you enjoyed the book. <laughs> oh, yeah, I certainly did. Well, thanks for joining us. Okay. And that was Dr. Feng Shung Su we just talked to. Feng Shung Su was the director of IBM's Deep Blue project which simulated a chess machine to play against Gary Kasparov in 1996 and 97. His book, Behind Deep Blue, is now available in bookstores everywhere. For more reviews, you can check out the LA Times or Scientific American. On behalf of Burke Grox, I certainly recommend this book for your holiday reading. You're listening to Berkeley Grok's only here on 90.7 FM, KLX. Coming up, find out what to do with your microwave, so stay tuned.
Welcome back to Berkeley Groxley here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, have you ever wondered how you can create a plasma at home? Well, you can find out this week on Brian Gerke's very own Everyday Science. That's right. This is the, probably the coolest thing you can do with your microwave without breaking it. Because, I mean, you can also put metal in your microwave and watch sparks fly around, but that usually breaks your microwave. How about However, cockroaches? Cockroaches? Well, and I suppose putting marshmallows in there is pretty cool, too. Uh, uh, yes. But the coolest thing I've ever done with my microwave is to build a plasma, a plasma? in my microwave. Wow. So what you need is a cork from a wine bottle, okay. a toothpick, uh, some source of flame, like a match, and a glass jar, or I've found that a Pyrex uh, measuring cup will work really well, uh-huh. and some about three plastic bottle caps from two-liter bottles. Okay. And you put, put it all on a plate. You stick the toothpick in the cork and set so that the toothpick can stand upright. Um, and then you put the three plastic bottle caps on the plate so you can set the jar or measuring cup on top of them over, over the top of the uh, toothpick. And then you so you take the jar off, light the toothpick on fire really well so it stays lit, put the jar back over the top of the toothpick, close the door, turn on the microwave for about 30 seconds, and uh, eventually a glowing plasma will form in the top of the jar oh. and will remain coherent there and hum and glow until you turn off your microwave. Hum? What, what frequency do you get? Um, it's kind of a low... A low buzz, loud, low. loud hum. You should probably turn off your microwave pretty quickly after that <laughs> because I'm um, <laughs> not sure how, starts, how long yeah. it will remain stable for. But I've done this many times and have yet to break my microwave down yet. So <laughs> if you're interested in building a plasma, hey, give it a try. Imp- impress your family, impress your friends. You know, what more do you want? Fun with physics in the kitchen. All right. Cool. That's the coolest everyday science we've had on. Okay, and now here's the quotable fact of the week. Ah, the quotable fact of the week. So it's estimated that 25 million Americans use tanning lamps every year. All right. Good for the UV business, I guess. Uh, good for, I guess, the tanning business. Yeah, hello, this is Herr Dr. Professor Einstein with the answer to last week's question of the week. Yeah, and it is not Dr. Roos. I am, I am Herr Dr. Professor Einstein with the question, which was, how does the spermicide work? Well, the spermicide is the most common is non-oxidal 9. And this non-oxidal 9, it interferes with the membrane proteins, and it breaks up the cells of the sperms, and it also disrupts the motility of the sperm. So they can't swim around, they can't find the little eggy. And if they can't find the eggy, they can't, you know, you know, you know, do the thing with the eggy. You know, you know the thing they do. So that is how the spermicide works. And now here's this week's question of the week. Well, speaking of sperm and eggs, what about eggplants? Why are eggplants purple? If you know the answer, just think you know the answer, email us at groxhotmail.com. You won't win anything, but you'll be a little bit more well-rounded. And finally, we have a public affairs message for all those public educators out there. And this is from ExploreVision. ExploreVision is a competition for students of all interest, skill, and ability levels in grades K through 12. Entrants must be U.S. or Canadian citizens or legal residents residing within. The purpose of the competition is to encourage students to combine their imaginations with the tools of science to create and explore a vision of a future technology. To prepare an entry, students work in groups of two to four to simulate a research and development teams, and they will work with a coach and an optional mentor. Each team takes a particular technology or aspect of technology and see how it evolve in the next 20 years. The students will then submit what this technology is in 20 years in a written description as well as five graphic pages. For more information, you can call 1-800-EXPLORE-9 or you can check out their website at www.toshiba.com. 
And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Crocs. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Crocs, you can do so at grocs at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Crocs, I'm Brian Gerke. And I'm Frank Ling. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grocs.net. And I'm Charles Lee. Stay tuned for more music with your host, The Boy Wonder. 